And let me point you to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. As we continue our series through this book of Exodus. The Hebrew word for face is plural in form, and it's often used to describe a person's physical presence. So our English Bibles accurately tell us that someone stood before another person. But the Hebrew text might literally read in such a place that so-and-so stood before the faces of that other person. Now obviously, this other person doesn't have multiple heads when it uses the plural faces, but in one sense, none of us has a single face either, do we? We are capable of displaying a face full of rage, or a face full of joy, of mischief, of fatigue. We have faces for discouragement, suspicion, incredulity, curiosity, confusion, silliness, sorrow, resolve, concentration, pain. It's no wonder our faces wrinkle. We've got all kinds of different expressions that come upon them from time to time. Many of these faces reflect a simple external stimuli of some sort. We have our oven face. You watch it. With anybody who sticks their head in a hot oven, they'll put on a characteristic face of how they deal with that heat. doesn't help your face any, but everybody's got their oven face. Most people make distinct faces for various things, but many of our faces reflect not only the external stimuli, but something that is deeply spiritual. Picture, for instance, the radiant smile that graces the face of a bride or groom on the day of their wedding, a face full of joy and delight. You've perhaps seen it. Or the face of Jesus set like a flint, toward Jerusalem, a face full of determination. And you know, people of God, it should be our zealous quest and our ultimate passion in life to have a face that is full of God. I speak less of our external appearance, obviously, and more of the spirit that characterizes our presence and emanates from our being The passage that I read earlier this morning that we've been looking through in Exodus chapter 33, it says that the Lord will go with the Israelites. You know, in the Hebrew text, it actually says, my faces will go before you. It is in that sense that I speak of a face that is full of God, in the sense that His presence is evident in us and through us. As the people of God, it is our high calling. It is our glorious mission It is our God-ordained destiny to so behold the glory of God that His radiance shines in us and from us. And as the Bible makes its winding path through the ages, one of the earliest evidences that we dare believe or pursue such a proposition is found in the experience of a man upon whose face rested the presence of God. A man whose face was literally full of the Lord. 
We come to Exodus chapter 34 and following Israel's horrifying rebellion against God at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus 32, Moses again ascends the heights of Mount Sinai to spend time alone with the Lord as God has called him to do. Verse 28 of chapter 34, verse 28, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, the Decalogue, that we find in Exodus chapter 20. And we find here then in verse 29, we're going to look at a, at a short section here this morning. As we've worked our way through Exodus, there's been some very lengthy sections, and God willing, if it's possible, we're going to pull off a real long one next week as we work through a very lengthy section again of the tabernacle. But here I'd like to settle down in this very short passage that is so profound as we seek to emulate the glory of God, to reflect it. We find here that Moses preaches God's word with a face full of God to a people full of fear. In verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Two tablets that may be, as some say, commands number one through four, the commands regarding our relationship with God, commands five through ten, commands regarding our love for our neighbor, it is also possible that these two tablets bear the very same words. In other words, there's two copies of the ten words. When two parties covenanted with one another in writing in the ancient world, they each received a copy of their agreement, as would be very similar today uh, in our agreements. And so through Moses' intercession, it may be here that God promises in 33.14 that he will tabernacle with his people, and Moses comes down the mountain with a copy for God in this agreement. One copy for the people, one copy for the Lord who will soon tabernacle among them. It's difficult to say. We don't have enough evidence. But perhaps Moses carries both these copies as a picture of the relationship and the covenant that now has been restored between Israel and God. But of course, it's Moses' face that takes up our primary attention here in verse 29. It's glowing. In chapter 32, Moses descended to the foot of Mount Sinai with a face full of rage due to what? Due to Israel's sin. On that occasion, Moses broke the tablets, bearing God's word in hot jealousy for the glory of God. On this occasion, however, he bears two new tablets, but his face is filled with the glory of the Lord. What's happened on this mountain? What has been going on up here? We remember it, chapter 33 and verse 18. In 33, 18, Moses says as he pleads for Israel before the Lord, Show me your glory. You have said that you will go with us. Give me evidence now of your presence among us. Show me your glory in a unique way. And he said, the Lord, verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will pro proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Go to chapter 34 and verse 6. Remember this revelation of the Lord that we witness here. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses receives this unique revelation of God, a vision of His glory, that is a a look at His glory, but also this verbal revelation of who the living God is. And over these 40 days, as he communes with God, this whole experience shines on his face. His skin, the Hebrew word indicates, radiates the light of God's glorious presence. Now this is weird. This is really one strange place. His time in God's presence, let us note, has a direct physical and transforming influence upon Moses. That should just go into our theological hopper and sit there because that point comes back over and over through the Bible. Standing in the presence of God has a physically transforming power. And when we think of this contextually, it is really exciting to think of what is taking place here. God shows His glory in dramatic ways in the book of Exodus. How has He shown His glory, His presence among His people? He has shown His glory in a bush that burns with fire but is not consumed. He has shown His glory in the great plagues upon Egypt in miraculous ways, in powerful ways, showing His greatness and His glory. And then we have seen His glory in the pillar of cloud and fire. We have seen His glory in bringing manna down from the heavens for the people of Israel to eat. We have seen His glory on the mountain with the flashes of lightning and the rumblings of thunder and the cloud descending upon the mountain. But now... The glory of God shines on a man's face. Moses has not become a god. He has not been glorified fully, and the proof he doesn't even realize his face is emitting light. However, that works scientifically. It would be wonderful to to know we don't know, but in some sense, he's not even aware that his face is shining. But everyone could clearly see that he had been with God, and that was a problem. Verse 30 of chapter 34. And Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. On one sense, who can blame them? See a guy come walking in here with a face that's radiating light, and you're going to say, the guy's radioactive, get out of here as fast as you can. You'd assume something was desperately wrong. So it's only a natural fear in one part for uh, the Israelites to be afraid. But I think more significantly, Israel's fear is owing to the fact that she knows where Moses has been. The Israelites have no confidence to stand before Moses because they have no confidence to stand before the God who lit up Moses' face. God's influence upon Moses is so profound, the sinful people sense their inadequacy and they scatter in fear. 
And I think this will be the case in anyone's life where holiness emits. There will be some who run away. This was true of Jesus. This is here true in a physical sense of Moses. They're afraid. But, verse 31, Moses called to them. A call that almost echoes the call of God to Adam and Eve in the garden. Where are you? Moses calls to them. And Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. He encourages them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. So he encourages the people, drawing them back to him. He talks first with the leaders, then with the assembly. And the whole time, his face shines with the glory of God. Talk about a powerful and authoritative sermon. There's no question where this message is coming from. It's come right from the mouth of God. But after the word of God is faithfully delivered, Moses does something that is really strange. Verse 33, And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Why is he doing that? We've got to look at it fairly closely, because I think the first thing that hits us, well, clearly puts a veil over his face so it's not to spook people. Or maybe it's so his wife can sleep at night or something like that. But why does he put a veil over his face? Notice it carefully. Is it to protect his listeners? As you look at very carefully verse 33, we have to say that's not the case because he does not shield his face from view until after he has delivered his sermon. So during the deliverance of the sermon, his face is shining for them all to see, but as the sermon ends, as he delivers the word of God, he puts a veil over his face. Now there may have been more than one reason for this. Maybe it was so that his wife could sleep at night. Maybe it was so that anybody could live with him. I don't know. But the one reason that we are given in Scripture found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 indicates that Moses did this so that Israel would not see the glory of his face fade away. It wasn't that they were so blinded by his face that they couldn't see it because they were looking at it during the entire sermon. He doesn't want them to see the glory fade. Apparently, Moses does not want Israel to witness the fact that the influence of God's presence upon him was temporal and not permanent. God's influence on Moses was indeed glorious. That was not hard for anyone to see, but that glory always faded away. And there was a message in that to the people. A message that Moses didn't want to emphasize. The indication is that something is less than complete in God's relationship with His people under this particular economy, in this particular way of relating to the Lord. Something's not fully complete in it. So when he is finished delivering the Word of God, he covers his face with a veil to protect the glory of God, to protect the relationship that he and the people have with God, so as not to bring attention to the fact that the glory fades. And this event, this one-time event, becomes an ongoing procedure. 
Notice verse 34. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. So again, it's not impossible to look at this. But in an ongoing pattern, Moses meets with God, removing the veil, then communicating the word of God, and then putting the veil back over his face. The end of verse 35, And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with God. Now where are these meetings located? That's a question we won't want to chase too long here, but maybe this is at that tent of meeting that's outside the camp. Perhaps it is a reference to the future meeting between Moses and God at the tabernacle, or perhaps it took place at both locations. We're not told here, but in any event, Moses continued to receive revelation from God, and God's presence continued to radiate from Moses' face as he proclaimed the word of the Lord to Israel. What happened on the day he descended from the mountain is then Moses' habitual practice. And again, out of zeal for God's honor, he conceals the fact that God's glory fades from his face. The transformation is temporary. It is not a complete and enduring transformation. It is a temporary transformation. And Moses seems to sense in that something of incompletion. So as the face full of God loses its glow, Moses covers up the evidence until he can get back with God and meet him face to face. We are aided in this fairly confusing passage as it stands on its own by the Apostle Paul's interpretation of this very text. So I encourage you to turn there to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And let's filter this passage through the New Testament reading. Now there are many Bible scholars that will tell you don't ever do this. And some will say that there is a, that there is a direct disconnect between these two passages that Paul is not in any way telling us what is actually there in Exodus. He is using it to make his own point and writing his own story about it. Now, I'm not saying that that's entirely impossible for a New Testament author to take an Old Testament passage and put a twist on it and a turn on it to some degree. But that twist and turn is always faithful to the text. And I'm not persuaded by this argument that Paul isn't straight up with us here and that God has revealed to him through careful meditation upon the passage exactly what's going on. Now, it's filled out, of course, in the light of Jesus Christ. But there's the place where a lot of scholars have a problem. They don't want to see Jesus in the Old Testament anywhere. And of course, many of the Old Testament writers didn't have a full vision of God. None of them had a full vision of what God was doing in Jesus Christ. But I think Paul is giving us here a commentary on what truly took place in Exodus chapter 34. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, let me just quickly state that Paul writes to the Corinthian believers whom he declares to have been saved. That is, they have been baptized in the Spirit and thus united to the body of Christ. Now think of that contextually. This is not Old Testament Israel. 
This is not Israel under the old covenant. This is something unique and distinct to the day on the other side of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God has been poured out upon God's people by the ascended Jesus, and that has placed individuals in the body of Christ, the church. You are those people. And Paul speaks to them then as a minister, not of the Mosaic covenant, but as a minister of a new covenant, verse 6. When you read of old covenant, new covenant, what he is talking about, of course, the old covenant being the Mosaic covenant. The new covenant being, of course, that which Jesus Christ has accomplished and through whom we can enter into living relationship with God. A covenant that is still being worked out in all of its ramifications and will come to conclusion and fulfillment in a time yet future to us, but nonetheless operative. Under this new covenant, God's word is written where? Not on physical stone tablets. Where is God's word written in his church? It is written on the heart of his people. Now, of course, we have it in written form. It stands written. But that written word and the essence of that written word, God is writing on the tablets of our heart in a spiritual sense. This is all what Paul is saying to the Corinthian believers. And then I'd like to jump into the discussion at verse 7. Now think of it in light of Exodus 34. Verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 3. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Of course, when he says here that they could not gaze at Moses' face, that doesn't mean in absolute terms they couldn't get anywhere near it. They talked with him, remember? They heard him speak. What it means is that it was off-putting, it was concerning, it separated them, it was so glorious that it caused them great trouble. But you'll notice here in verse 7 that it says that it was being brought to an end. What Paul is saying is that all of this relationship between Israel and God is, being, is passing away as it comes to fullness in Jesus Christ where we meet God in a new way and in a fuller way. Romans chapter 10 and verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. So this old law is passing away, and now we're dealing with something not written on tablets of stone. And then he asks in verse 8, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of, the condemnation, of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. What's he saying? The old covenant condemns. Not because there's anything wrong with the old covenant. There's glory to the relationship between Israel and God. A glory seen on Moses' face. There's nothing wrong with that covenant. It is a glorious covenant. The problem is, is that it was temporal. It was passing away. And its problem was that it only condemned because of the evil heart of those who heard it and did not honor it. But in contrast, verse 9, we have a ministry of righteousness that exceeds it in glory. What's that ministry of righteousness? It is the ministry of Jesus. It is the ministry of Jesus imputing his righteousness to us who have responded in faith. 
It is a ministry that includes the indwelling of the Spirit of God who comes to take up residence within the believer, and it is by far more glorious. Verse 10, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because the glory, because of the glory, that surpasses it. What's his point? You see it any time that you happen to be up in the very last hours of the early morning before the sun rises. What do you see in the night sky? You see these glorious stars. Well, if you're not in the suburbs. But you can look up and see these glorious stars in the sky. And what happens when the sun rises? Well, everybody knows the stars disappear, right? No more than the sun actually rises. They don't disappear. It's the light of the sun that overwhelms the light of these stars. It is in a sense, then, that the Old Covenant is like those stars. It has glory. It shines with light. But when Jesus appears, to which the law and the prophets testify, He, like the risen sun, blows away all of the glory of this Old Covenant. Now there is a new covenant in Christ that shines with such greater glory. Verse 11, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory... Think Moses coming down the mountain with his face glowing. Much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the countenance of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Ironically, Israel has its own veil, figuratively speaking, for she was not in Moses' day, or is she to this very day able to see that the Old Covenant pointed to Jesus Christ? And so Moses' glory in the presence of God fades and is temporal. The glory in the new covenant is not. Now some do see this, and it's open to all, as the book of Romans 9-11 through makes clear. But, verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. There is a way of seeing Christ even for the Jew who is blinded to it. Now, verse 17, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What kind of freedom, Paul? Notice verse 18, and read it in light of Exodus 34. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What is our freedom? We all have unrestricted access to God through Jesus Christ. This is a glorious freedom. Everything that we have seen in all of Exodus is separating God from the people. Only Moses can go to the top of the mountain. Only on the first pass could Joshua and the elders meet further up the hill. And on this last one, as with the first case, the people are restricted from even touching the mountain on pain of death and no animal to go anywhere near it. 
But what we find now in Jesus Christ is that we have been drawn into the presence of God. There is unrestricted access for all of us. What is this freedom? This freedom is that as we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory does not fade. This is the greater glory of our relationship with Christ. What is our freedom? Our righteousness does not come from external obedience to the Mosaic law, but comes from the Spirit of God who writes God's words on our hearts. That is, our salvation is a matter of the heart so that the glory of the Lord shines permanently on our face from within. What is given here is more than the presence of Yahweh with His people who tabernacles among them. What is given to us in Jesus Christ is the Spirit of the Lord dwelling within our very bodies. This is a glorious truth. And it is a glory that never fades. It only, as verse 18 says, increases. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The degree of glory as we reflect the glory of Christ through the indwelling Spirit constantly increases in the life of the believer. That doesn't mean that there's no sin. That doesn't mean that there's no setback. But what it means is that there's an increasing glory into the likeness of Christ. So the Apostle Paul helps us to comprehend that reflecting the glory of God was not a one-time experience limited to a great leader like Moses. Rather, Moses' experience was all along pointing forward to a fuller reflection of the glory of God, to a day when no veils would be needed to cover the fading glory. The veil is gone. The veil drops in the life of anyone who responds in saving faith to Jesus Christ. And that veil remains gone as the glory of the Lord shines through our lives. In light of this instruction, how should we respond? It should be our zealous quest. It should be our ultimate passion in life to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Now that Jesus has come, now that He has died to pay the penalty of sin, now that He has risen from the dead in victory, those who have placed their saving faith in Jesus Christ are being transformed incrementally into the likeness of Jesus from whose face shines the glory of God. Chapter 4 and verse 6 of 2 Corinthians. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If this is just more than words passing by, and there is a great danger here. A great danger that you may hear these words and know of this work of God in this world and be one who has the veil over your eyes. Who has a veil that does not see. As verse 6 says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There are people in this world whose eyes are veiled. They cannot see it. And as Paul goes on to say, their eyes are veiled, or says previously, by the blinding work of Satan. 
is that veil over your eyes. Jesus Christ is the ultimate glory in this world. And our temptation is to be so attracted to the idols of this world, to be so taken by the immediate pleasures of this world, that our eyes are veiled to this glory of Jesus. Have you seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? If not, the problem is not the Bible. The problem is not the work of Jesus. He is the full radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. The problem is that there is moral failure. That is, you refuse to see His glory. There is only one response, and that is to come in repentance and to come to the work that Jesus Christ has done on the cross and in His victory over the grave and to repent to turn from your blindness and to receive the light of the glory of Jesus Christ as it shines in your heart. Many of us, by God's grace, have responded to the saving message. And we need to ask this hard question, and it fills me with conviction. Does your face shine? Not literally, but is the life of Jesus shining from you in Christ-like character and vision? We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, that we are being transformed into His likeness. Is that evident in 1 John 3 and verse 2 that we will see Him, that as we see Him, we will be like Him, transformed into the glory of Jesus Christ. This is our destiny and this is our life. But the question that comes for those of us who know Christ as Savior, as we continue to seek to discern if in fact we are in the faith, the question that continues to come is, do we even want this? Do we really want it? Do you long for others to see Christ on your face flowing through you in godly character and holy living? The only roadblock there, if you do genuinely know Christ as Savior, is idolatry and moral sin. We have other loves. We have other desires that take us away. Our need, too, is to repent, to behold the face of Jesus until He shines through us, to come back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be enamored all over again. I think along these lines of Nathaniel Hawthorne's great stone face short story, it's filled with its own problems, but it is a tremendous parable. Hawthorne describes in the story a huge valley, massive, many villages, and farms, and people living throughout this great valley that is bordered on either side by these great stone cliffs. And water runs off of these cliffs into the valley below and makes it fruitful and beautiful. But one of the things that so dis distinguishes this valley is that it is graced by a unique rock formation that hovers over the whole valley, as it were. And the further back that you get from this rock formation, you see a face. 
A great stone face that overlooks all. And the further away you get, the more it looks real. Of course, as you get close, it just becomes rocks and is, is, doesn't, it loses that visage. But there is hovering over this entire valley. This great presence, as it were, as these rocks just naturally form this great face. It is a face like none other. It is filled with kindness, with wisdom, with compassion, with strength, with a depth that seems to bless the whole valley. And all look to it in danger of worship. But there's a great legend that says that a likeness of the great stone face would appear someday in flesh. A real person that looked just like the face and would bring that same glorious visage to the valley. That legend lasted for many generations and then began to be seen as a fable. So many generations had passed, it couldn't possibly be true. One in that valley who wanted to believe it would be true was a boy by the name of Ernest. He lived in a little log cabin with his mother. They had none of the amenities of the modern world. And this boy spent his days longing and dreaming that the great stone face would arrive. That he would see the man who bore such a beautiful face. His mother knew it was just a myth. But she just didn't have the heart, through all the disappointments that they had in their little log cabin on the other side of the valley, she didn't have the heart to disappoint him. And so she let him believe the lie. Well, as the story winds its way along, some individuals actually come and say, we found the great stone face. He's arrived in the valley and there's great excitement and people gather to hear This great individual speak. But Ernest, through these many days now, as time has passed, has every night gone and looked at the face of stone. And as he sees the man speak, he knows that it's not him. And he walks away so disappointed. Later, as he becomes an elderly man, another comes and another. And as these individuals come, he finds always that what people are seeing is not the character of the face. What they're seeing is somebody of prominence, importance, with money, with great skill. But he never sees the face. Then, As an aged man who now, at this point in his life, having concentrated on the face for so very long, now delivers lectures and speaks about just what he thinks the face is saying and what he thinks he sees there. But a poet comes to town and he's a man of rare ability and unique insight. And as Ernest hears the man speak, he says, I think this is him. He's saying things that no one else says. Could it be? And he compares the face, but he's taken by the words most of all. 
But he gets alone with the poet, and the poet says, Oh, to the aged Ernest now, no, it's not me. I write grand words, but I don't live them. And so in great disappointment, Ernest now fully resigned to the fact that the face will never show. Delivers a speech, as he has done so many times with the face in the background. Ernest is just a humble man. People have come to trust his wisdom and trust his heart, but he's nobody important in the valley. But it's this stranger, this poet who has come, who knows what greatness is, at least in theory, who listens to Ernest's speech. And as he listens, he sees something. He sees the visage of the face behind as the man speaks. Let me read as it concludes. Ernest began to speak, giving to the people of what was in his heart and mind. His words had power because they accorded with his thoughts, and his thoughts had reality and depth because they harmonized with the life which he had always lived. It was not mere breath that this preacher uttered. They were the words of life because a life of good deeds and holy love was melted into them. Pearls pure and rich had been dissolved into this precious drought. The poet, as he listened, felt that the being and character of Ernest were a nobler strain of poetry than he had ever written, his eyes glistening with tears. He gazed reverently at the venerable man and said within himself that never was there an aspect so worthy of a prophet and a sage as the mild, sweet, thoughtful countenance with the glory of white hair diffused about it at a distance but distinctly to be seen. High up in the golden light of the setting sun appeared the great stone face with hoary mists around it, like the white hairs around the brow of Ernest. Its look of grand beneficence seemed to embrace the world. At that moment, in sympathy with a thought which he was about to utter, the face of Ernest assumed a grandeur of expression so imbued with benevolence that the poet, by an irresistible impulse, threw his arms aloft and shouted, Behold, behold, Ernest is himself the likeness of the great stone face. Then all the people looked and saw that what the deep-sighted poet said was true. The prophecy was fulfilled. But Ernest, having finished what he had to say, took the poet's arm and walked slowly homeward. Still hoping that some wiser and better man than himself would by and by appear, bearing a resemblance to the great stone face.
my emotion doesn't come from Nathaniel Hawthorne. And I don't know what inspired this message from his pen. But it comes from the reality that we do not see a stone face. We see the living face of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us. There's no great prophecy of any one coming to bear the likeness of Christ again. But for all of His people, we're being drawn to that light. You, as you know Jesus Christ, He is working within you His glory. Through the indwelling Spirit of God, He is showing out through your life the glories of Jesus and how far short we fall. And how we understand Ernest who says, no, you don't understand. The more he comes to see the face, the more he knows how much it's not him. But yet the more others know that it is. We view a living face the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is our calling as God's people to know that face, to read and understand the life of Jesus Christ as we did today in John chapter 4, to start there with who Jesus is, and then as we come to understand Him more, to fill up that knowledge by knowing all of the Bible, the Old Testament as it points to Jesus, and the New Testament as it teaches us how to seek His face as believers in Christ so that by the grace of God we are transformed from one stage of glory to the next, ever beholding the face of Jesus Christ until He comes and we become like Him. This is the grand project. We dare to believe it initially in the man whose face shone with the glory of God, but now we see it in our relationship with Jesus Christ, a face full of God. May it be true. May it be true of those who know Him as Savior. May we see ever-increasing levels of glory emit from our fallen being. Let's bow and ask the Lord to do this great work in us. Our Father, we sense our failings, our weakness, our impurities, our unrighteousness inherently. God, we rejoice together in the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to our account as your people. I plead for anyone who is trying to please you in their own strength. They're here in a church because they think it's a good thing to do or they don't really have a choice. But they're going forward in their own righteousness. I pray, God, that you would rebuke that folly and that sin. And I pray, Father, for those of us who know you as Savior, that we with them would respond in repentance. And know, Father, how often the face of Jesus does not shine on our countenance. But God, I pray that you will do a sanctifying work. We know that that means pain and difficulty. It means conformity into the image of Jesus, which is a great shaping work. God, we do not ask you above all for ease, 
we ask you above all that the likeness of Christ would shine on our face. That you would transform our character through the presence of the Spirit within us. Father, will you be doing this work, we pray, among us. Go with us. Show us your presence. But Father, may it well up from within us. May you change us as we behold Jesus. It is in his name that we pray.